Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, we're talking with Stefan Gaine. He is a researcher, science communicator, and science consultant who focuses on the determinants of eating behavior and body fatness. Today, we're discussing his book, The Hungry Brain. Stefan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Um, So what, what inspired you to write this book? Well, it was a long time coming. Um, I have a longstanding interest in uh, neuroscience and also diet and fitness. And uh, my education basically gradually converged on me studying the neuroscience of obesity. So when I was a graduate student, I was studying neurodegenerative disease. Um, I've kind of always wanted to be a neuroscientist. Then... um, for my postdoc, I moved into something that I think is one of the biggest challenges we face in the modern world, the modern affluent world particularly, and that is obesity. So um, with Mike Schwartz, a researcher at the University of Washington, uh, we studied the brain circuits that regulate body fatness and eating behavior and um, kind of gradually during the course of my work, some really simple but really profound concepts dawned on me, Um, one of which is that the brain generates all behavior. It generates all of your feelings. It generates all of your impulses, so hunger, cravings, eating behavior. All of that is generated by the brain, so the brain is obviously an important frame for thinking about eating behavior and body fatness. The brain also directly regulates body fatness. but also that a lot of people don't really think about it in that way. That's not really part of most people's mental models of how eating behavior and body fatness work. Um, and I realized that people don't want to overeat. Nobody wants to overeat. And yet the majority of Americans eat too many calories and end up becoming, literally developing obesity. I mean, the prevalence of obesity, the lifetime prevalence of obesity in the United States right now is over 50%, meaning that more than half of people at some point in life will develop obesity. So clearly that's related to calorie balance. And so why, you know, and we often eat food that we know is not good for us, and we eat too much, and we know we're eating too much, yet we do it anyway. And so what are the brain circuits that are driving us to do that? I mean, obviously those behaviors are generated by brain circuits and there's some kind of conflict happening where there are circuits that are causing us to engage in behavior that is literally undermining our positive, healthy goals for ourselves. And, and so this, these kind of like simple, but to me pretty profound realizations Um, led me to write this book to explain why we overeat, even though we don't want to. And so it's really an exploration of the neuroscience of eating behavior from the perspective of a, it's trying to be accessible to a non-scientist. And um, it's really trying to answer that question, why do we overeat even though we don't want to? Well, you know, I think that this is something everybody can relate to. I mean, there isn't one person that I've met who doesn't love food or use food, you know, to to celebrate something or or you know, stress eats when they're they're sad or something's going on. I I, I you know, I, it's not a foreign concept that we have those links with food, but of course, it doesn't make sense on on some levels that that we're doing something that's hurting us. And we can logically look at something and go, well, that's not right for me to eat that chocolate bar. But then something, you know, I think everybody's been through this, something in us, we go and reach for it. And then after we go, why did I eat that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, per, it's perplexing. And, you know, it's interesting because it, if, you, if you think about it in the, mo- in the context of the modern world, 
it really doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like, why would you have these brain circuits that are essentially pushing us to become fat and sick? And I mean, that is literally what we have. That's one of the conclusions I come to in my book. But the thing is that they actually do make a lot of sense, but in the context of the world of our ancestors, where those circuits evolved. So those circuits evolved in a context where they actually were very, very beneficial, but our environment has changed so much that now they're pushing us in the wrong direction. But they're not circuits that we fully have control over. Many of them are non-conscious or minimally conscious. They're kind of whirring around in the background. Like, for example, if you have a craving for a food, where does that come from? Like, what? You're not really in control of that craving. You, you can choose not to act on it, but you can't stop yourself from feeling that craving. That's coming from non-conscious brain circuits that you can't really control, at least not directly. And so um, those things actually make a lot of sense, but just not in the context of the modern environment. So when we're looking at, at, at bringing this down, you know, to a simple um, area, just to start, when when we're dealing with hunger, I mean, cravings are, are different, but also uh, sometimes people, you know, they eat when they're not hungry. So, so what exactly is hunger and how do we recognize that and understand that in our bodies? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're asking me to define it because I think that's kind of important. Um, so hunger is essentially the brain's response to energy depletion or at least perceived energy depletion. And so if you, um, it's, it's a motivational state that is directed at food in general, not at a specific food like a craving. Um, so it's a motivational state that's pushing you to eat food, and it's also a sensation. You have a sensation in your stomach of wanting to put food in it. Um, and it's generated by specific to the brain that are responding to your body's both short-term and long-term energy status. So basically, your brain is receiving signals from different parts of your body that is informing it of your body's energy status, such as the amount of food that's in your digestive tract and the amount of fat you carry on your body. And those signals are integrated in parts of the brain, like the thalamus and the brainstem. And then the neurons in those parts of the brain essentially take all that information and come to a decision about whether they should drive you to eat more food or not. And if they decide that you don't have enough energy and that they want to drive you to eat more food, then they will create a sensation of hunger. And again, that's not something you can really consciously control. You can control your behavior in response to hunger, but you can't control whether you feel hungry or not. And that's a very powerful motivator, as I'm sure everyone will, will recognize, <clears throat> that being hungry and not eating when there's food around you is a really difficult thing to do. Hunger is a really powerful force, and it's not something that's very easy to deny. And this is uh, one of the main reasons why dieting is so difficult and so often unsuccessful is that people, when, when you're literally fighting yourself, when your conscious brain that wants you to go on a diet is fighting your non-conscious brain that wants you to eat that food, you have an internal struggle going on that's very difficult for your conscious brain to win over the long term. And so that creates a, a very difficult situation that undermines weight loss. Um, although, as I talk about in the book, there are ways to mitigate that by directly addressing um, those circuits that are creating hunger. So what's the difference between hunger and a craving? Yeah, so hunger is a nonspecific motivation to eat food. So in hunger, you would, you, you could say, like, let's say you would be equally satisfied by a piece of bread or a piece of meat or an egg or some beans. You're just, you just want energy. You just want calories. A craving is a food-specific motivational state. So 
there you're not, it's not really about calories when you're, when you're craving. It's about getting this particular food that you like. And so for chocolate, for example, like if you have a chocolate craving, if you eat uh, a piece of salmon, that's not going to satisfy your chocolate. It's a food-specific motivational state, and only that food is going to satisfy your craving. And so that comes from different brain regions. Cravings comes from a totally separate set of brain regions than the one I was just talking about. It comes more from the uh, basal ganglia and forebrain, and those are the parts of your brain that are responsible for setting your um, motivation and your pleasure And those are basically determining the seductiveness of different foods. So whether or not something's really tempting, like a piece of chocolate, or maybe not that tempting, like a boiled potato, plain boiled potato, or like a piece of celery, those are things that just don't really get those circuits as fired up. So there are certain specific food properties that cause those brain areas to become activated and trigger those cravings. And essentially, those food properties are the same ones that promoted the survival of our distant ancestors. And so that's why our brains are wired to respond to them. So you mentioned the seductiveness of certain foods. What makes food so seductive? Yeah, so essentially, the body and the brain is wired to look for specific properties in food. And as I mentioned, those are the properties that kept our ancestors alive and fertile and therefore were selected strongly by natural selection. So basically we are crafted, we have specific receptors in our digestive tract, primarily the upper small intestine that detect uh, carbohydrate and fat and protein We have receptors that detect salt. We have receptors that detect glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor in soy sauce and MSG and bone broth. And those things are hardwired. So every human has receptors for those. And when those receptors are activated, they signal up to the brain, up to those parts of the brain that determine our motivation and pleasure, and they start to cause dopamine to be released. And what dopamine does is it causes us to, it increases our motivation level to do whatever we're doing. And so it, if you're eating a slice of pizza, for example, and all of a sudden all this information comes up from the gut saying, wow, this is a really concentrated source of starch and fat and salt and some protein, your dopamine starts to spike. And by the way, it spikes proportionally to the concentration of those nutrients Um, And then that basically tells your brain, whoa, whoa, this is really good. This is good stuff. You need to eat more of this. This has tons of those nutrients that we're looking for, and that motivates you to keep eating that pizza. But it does something else that's even more insidious. It causes you to learn. So it causes, it sets your future motivation for when you encounter pizza the next time. And so essentially, the next time you experience visual cues or smell cues, such as seeing the pizza or smelling it or whatever, that cue then gets your dopamine spiking and motivates you to eat the pizza. So this is why when we're around, when we smell the smell of freshly baked cookies, it makes us really crave cookies. Or when we see pizza on a table, it makes us want to eat the pizza or the donuts or the chocolate or whatever it is that you really like. When you see it, when you smell it, when you experience that cue that gets your dopamine spiking, that's when your motivation really hits. If you don't experience that cue, if there's no smell, if there's no sight, if it's across the street and you'd have to go walk over to get it, your dopamine's not spiking and you're a lot less likely to crave it and to seek it out than if you're experiencing those immediate cues. Those are basically telling your brain, this is a situation in which you can easily get this really, really awesome food. Because to your brain, to those ancient circuits that were wired in the time of our distant ancestors, those are amazing foods. 
So, um, yeah, so essentially that dopamine gets released in proportion to the concentration of those nutrients. And today, in the modern world, our foods are very, very concentrated in the nutrients. So basically, you know, our ancestors, our distant ancestors basically ate whatever they had access to, and they weren't able to purify and refine and cook and prepare food in the same way that we can today. So today, we can basically take all of those active ingredients in food that spike dopamine. We can purify sugar to a crystalline form. We can purify starch. We can purify salt to a crystalline form, MSG to a crystalline form. We can extract fat and add it as much as we want. So essentially, we have purified these dopamine spiking factors to their purest form, really in just the same way that we purified cocaine out of the coca leaf. It's very, very analogous. Cocaine is the factor in the coca leaf that spikes dopamine. We've done the same thing with food, and it causes our dopamine to spike a lot. And so modern foods have properties that cause our dopamine to spike a lot, which means that they cause us to be very, very motivated to eat them. And that motivation can be very hard to control. And that the experience of that is a craving. Um, that craving can be very, very hard to control, as most of us know. People differ in how much they experience craving. Most people, at least in some situations, experience them strongly and have a hard time controlling their behavior. And the extreme of that is that some people actually develop addictive-like behaviors around certain foods. Um, We're going to talk like, about this. I, I want to pick this up um, after the break. Um, we're going to take a quick okay. break. We're talking today with Stefan right. uh, Guyane. He is the author of The Hungry Brain. And we'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Stefan Guyane. He's the author of The Hungry Brain. So, Stefan, before the break, you were talking about um, how the dopamine... Um, I just want to make sure I understand this. So, when we eat certain foods, dopamine is triggered in our body, and that's what make, makes us crave those. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. So a food like celery has very little carbohydrate, fat, um, starch, or protein. It doesn't trigger much dopamine. People don't experience cravings for plain celery. But something like chocolate is extremely calorie-dense. It has those things the brain's looking for. It triggers a lot of dopamine, and it's the most highly craved, most commonly craved food. So what, when we're um, overstimulating this, you said in, in society today where we're refining our food to, to make this happen all the time because we're craving that. And I think everybody listening can relate to what we're doing is actually craving our food and eating more and more of those foods. Um, what, what's happening to us um, as we're doing that? I mean, this, this can't be something that's natural for us or it wouldn't have to be something that we would refine. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a really good question. So as I said, we're basically, our, our food is, um, we have identified and extracted and concentrated the active ingredients in food that spike dopamine in our brains, just the same way that we did it with cocaine. We extracted it out of the coca leaf, which is traditionally chewed in South America as a mild stimulant, similar to a cup of coffee, when you figure out the molecule in there that spikes dopamine and you concentrate it, you get cocaine, which is an addictive drug. And if you further modify that to spike dopamine even more, you get crack cocaine, which is an extremely addictive drug. And so basically, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that these different steps in the refining and chemical alteration of uh, the coca plant are, were made possible by developments in technology as the technology of humankind progressed. And that same technology has allowed us to identify the active ingredients in food and to purify it out to make food that is more and more seductive. And basically, it's, it's just a process of consumer demand. I mean, what do you want to eat? Do you want to eat a food that tastes really good, or do you want to eat a food that's mediocre? I mean, the food industry and home cooks and chefs, they've just responded to the consumer demand that's created by the hardwiring of the human brain. So, and that has led to the concentration of these factors that spike dopamine. And as I said, dopamine creates your motivational state. And so the more dopamine spikes, the more motivated you will be to engage in the behavior that spikes that dopamine, in this case, eating food like chocolate or pizza or whatever, and the more that behavior will be prioritized over other behaviors that you could engage in. So, for example, if you have a choice between going for a walk and eating some donuts or, you know, or eating donuts versus not eating donuts, you are going to tend to choose the donuts if you're feeling, if you're having a lot of dopamine release as you, you know, previously when you ate those donuts. So essentially it, it serves to prioritize your behavior and set the intensity of your behavior. That's, that's the purpose of dopamine. And um, when that comes to an extreme, you know, people, people get addicted to cocaine. People get addicted to crack cocaine. We know this. And the reason is that it releases a ton of dopamine. Our food today releases more dopamine than our distant ancestors' food. And we know that people today, it's actually really common. There are researchers suggesting that something like 10 to 20% of people exhibit behavior that is addictive-like towards certain foods. So it's controversial to say that it's truly addiction. There's still some controversy in the field, but certainly 10 to 20% of people have behaviors that look a whole lot like addiction to other things like drugs or gambling or whatever it is. Um, and I think there's no question that that relates to the fact that our modern foods release too much dopamine relative to what our brain came to expect. So if somebody is looking at, at themselves and their relationship with food, listening to this conversation, I mean, obviously we need food as part of our survival. So how can they tell the difference whether or not what 
their relationship with is, is it an addiction and a problem or if they're um, just have a healthy relationship and they're supposed to eating when they're supposed to eat. What's the difference there? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it really kind of depends on where you draw the line. I mean, the, the really, the key characteristic of addiction is if you want to be really stringent about it is engaging in a behavior, um, engaging in a behavior kind of compulsively, even though it's continuing to do you harm and you recognize that it's doing you harm. And I think if you use a strict metric like that, I think you could say that probably most Americans are addicted to food or at least to unhealthy foods, I should say. Um, and I, I honestly think that there's a real reluctance to recognize the scope of the problem um, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that most of us are, are addicted, but I do think that most of us are too motivated to eat unhealthy foods and that that causes us to eat too many of those foods and gain weight. And I think people don't really, aren't really willing to accept how big of a problem this really is on a kind of public health level. Um, but that said, so the way that food addiction is, diagnosed in a research setting is they essentially look for similarities to um, other types of addiction. So they use criteria that are applied um, by psychologists to diagnose addiction in other contexts, such as drug addiction, and they kind of try to adapt those to um, food addiction. So these are things like um, eating until you feel sick, um, experiencing withdrawal if you don't get certain types of foods. So, um, experiencing certain symptoms of withdrawal, um, eating instead of engaging in social behavior, um, things like that. I don't, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but those are a few types of things that they're looking for. So, in, in your book, you talk about food reward. What, what's that? Yeah, so food reward is the seductiveness of food. That's what I like to say in kind of lay terms. That's, I think, the easiest way to think about it. Um, and that it's a function in the brain that is um, composed of pleasure, motivation, and learning. And all those things kind of come together and um, all of them except pleasure are kind of dominated by this substance, dopamine. Um, so food reward is the quality of a food that causes us to be motivated by it, causes us to crave it, causes us to find it seductive. So foods that are highly rewarding are going to be things like chocolate that have those properties that stimulate our motivational centers in our brain, cause that dopamine to be released. Foods that are not very rewarding, like celery or plain lentils or plain boiled potato, those are things that don't have those properties that really powerfully stimulate those centers in the brain. Um, and... Food reward is something that it's kind of interesting. I mean, basically it's a marker of how much your brain intuitively values the food. Like when you find a food really delicious, really seductive, when it makes you crave, that means that your brain implicitly, intuitively thinks that food is really valuable based on its hardwired criteria. And, and as I said before, those criteria usually revolve around some pretty simple things, just like having a bunch of fat and salt and sugar and starch. And, um, and yeah, that's, so that's a property, that food reward, that food is a property that has a huge impact on what we, it has a huge impact on how much we eat and ultimately on our body fatness. Well, one one thing um, that you know I'm 
think about it as I listen to all of this. I mean, we've, I understand that, you know, we're getting this dopamine release, which is making us crave this food. It makes us feel good to do that. But it, it, it baffles me that we don't have some sort of regulator in our body that helps us, you know, realize, oh, I'm full. I don't want any more. Or, you know, this isn't healthy for me. It's causing me to gain weight and it's going to hurt my heart and all of this. And, and so what is happening in our brains that those switches aren't being turned on when we're hurting ourselves with food? Well, those, they, they actually do exist and they do get turned on, but they're just not as effective as we wish they were. Um, so you, you have to consider the context in which the human brain evolved. The, you know, until something like 10 or 15,000 years ago, we were all hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, digging up tubers and picking fruit, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, hunting wild animals. And, you know, we, at this point, we know a lot about how hunter-gatherers live from studying contemporary hunter-gatherers. And there's no obesity in hunter-gatherers. Um, obesity is, I, I'm not aware of a single case of actual true obesity in any hunter-gatherer that's ever been studied. I've never crossed one in, in terms of traditionally living hunter-gatherers. So that's a condition that just doesn't occur very much in, in quote-unquote wild humans. It's not really something that natural selection prepared us for. It's not something that it prepared our brains for. We don't, it's not really a threat to our survival in a natural setting. So we, we're not really fully equipped to deal with it. We're not, we're not equipped in terms of our hardware. We can still have behaviors that help us deal with it. We can still learn how to deal with it, but we're not hardwired to really deal with that effectively. Or at least I should say that most people aren't. Some people, you know, and this, there's, a, there's a lot of genetics in this. I want to be very clear. Um, some people can literally overeat large amounts of food and their bodies will just burn it off almost completely. Whereas other people, if they overeat that exact same amount of food, every single extra calorie will go directly into their fat tissue. And this has been demonstrated in controlled trials. So it's very, it depends on the individual, but most of us are going to, are going to, have brains that push us to eat too much and have bodies that cause the fat to go into the fat cells. And, um, you know, it's, it's not just that obesity wasn't a threat for our distant ancestors. Eating, overeating when it was an option was actually good for them. It was literally beneficial for them to overeat when they were in a situation where they could eat a large number of easy calories. So, for example, some of the anthropologists I spoke with described hunter-gatherers drinking a liter of honey, just like downing a liter of honey, eating 30 wild oranges that are similar in size and sweetness to the ones we eat in the grocery store, eating five pounds of meat, of fatty meat, in one sitting. I mean... Basically, when these people have the opportunity to gorge, when they come across tasty, abundant food, they take advantage of it. And the reason is that it's hard for enough calories. Their everyday existence, they're often hungry. That's not to say they're starving. They don't, generally, they're very well nourished, but they don't get quite as many calories as they want. They don't get quite as many calories as they need to have maximum reproductive success, which is the currency of natural selection. And so when they have the opportunity to take advantage of these windfalls, these really easy calories, they will do it. And so our brains are kind of wired in that same way. I, I believe that our brains are essentially, we have the same brains that they did and they respond to the same types of incentives. And so so that's the context. Basically, there are circuits in our brains that are, are basically saying, don't be stupid. Don't pass up this opportunity to eat all this amazing food. 
And those circuits don't really want to hear it about your health goals, about fitting into a bathing suit next summer, about your diabetes risk, all that. They, they have, they just want you to eat that really good food because throughout almost all of our existence, it would have been good for you. It would have helped your survival. It would have helped your reproduction. And it ultimately would have been selected for by natural selection. So that's the context. Um, and yeah, so our brains just aren't really set up to protect us that well. That's not to say that they don't protect us at all. They do. I mean, we have satiety mechanisms. You know, there's a point at which if you eat a certain amount of food, you're going to feel full and you're going to stop. So, um, and that's one of the things that I talk about exploiting in my book as a way to control your calorie intake painlessly is to eat foods that have certain properties that stimulate those circuits more. But I think basically we have... Go ahead. We're gonna we're gonna actually take a quick break and and let's talk about that more um, after. We're talking today with Stefan Guyane. He's the author of The Hungry Brain. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Stefan Guyane. Uh, sorry, Guyane. Sorry. He is the author of The Hungry Brain. Um, so, Stefan, you know, in your book, you talk about all the things that we can do to, to help with our cravings. So, or how do we deal with the hungry brain? What can we do about all of this? Yeah. So, essentially, the first thing to realize is that we are, our behavior is being influenced by these non-conscious circuits that are driving us to overeat. And so just kind of recognizing the problem is the first thing. And people get into a lot of self-blame, I think, uh, around eating behavior and body fatness. And I think conceptualizing of it in that way helps to kind of relieve some of that self-blame because I mean, we're just hardwired with these circuits that we inherited from our distant ancestors. You can't really control, you can't directly control their activity. 
you can't say, no, I don't want to experience hunger. No, I don't want to experience cravings and just snap your fingers and make them go away. However, once you recognize that these impulses and these behaviors are coming from specific circuits in your brain, you can say, well, how can I influence those? Is there any way, I know I can't snap my fingers, but is there any other way that we can influence these circuits? And the answer is yes, because these circuits, they don't just spontaneously fire for no reason. They're responding to specific cues that are coming from both inside and outside of your body. So essentially, there are specific cues that trigger these circuits to drive you to eat food and to drive you to eat too much food. And so basically, my strategy focuses on addressing those cues and changing those cues so that those non-conscious circuits, instead of opposing you, instead of undermining you by generating hunger and cravings and all those things, they are supporting you. They're supporting your healthy slimming goals by giving you an appropriate amount of hunger, giving you cravings that are not as strong, and ultimately generating eating behavior where you're eating as much as you want to comfort to, to comfortable fullness, but that's the right amount for the body fatness that you want to maintain. And so there are a few different ways we can do that. And I, you know, I, I talk about a number of strategies in my book and I'll just get to a couple of them here, whatever we have time for. But um, really the most straightforward one is to change the cues that you're giving to the satiety circuits in your brainstem. So essentially the way that works, satiety is, is another word for fullness. Um, essentially the way that works is that as you eat food, that food travels down into your digestive tract and your brain is monitoring what's happening in your digestive tract. So as your stomach expands, that sends signals up to your brainstem. And then as that food goes down into your small intestine, it starts to hit receptors that are measuring the chemical composition of that food. So how much carbohydrate does it have? How much protein? How much fat? All that information goes up to your brainstem. And your brainstem there does some very complicated calculations. This is all non-conscious. You're not aware of any of these calculations. But the output you're aware of, and the output is whether or not you're still hungry. So as you eat food at a meal with each additional bite, that satiety signal, that fullness signal in your brainstem builds, and eventually it becomes strong enough that you're no longer motivated to eat food. Signals go out to the motivational centers of your brain and say, this is not something we want to really do anymore. Let's, you know, clear the dishes. Um, so, interestingly, though, that process, that, that system of gut-brain communication that regulates your fullness doesn't do a very good job of... Um, measuring the amount of calories in your food. So in other words, there are certain types of food that can create more fullness per unit calorie such that you reach that level where you feel full sooner having eaten fewer calories. So essentially when we sit down to a meal and we eat, that sensation of fullness, that sensation of satiety for most of us is what terminates the meal. That's the point that we're that says, "Hey, I'm done eating and I'm going to step away from this food. And so if we can make that happen sooner when you've eaten fewer calories, you can essentially eat fewer calories, but not be hungry. You can be comfortable. And so um, there are certain very simple food properties that cause more satiety than others. So one of them that's very important is calorie density. So this is the number of calories per unit weight or volume of your food. So food that's very rich, like a stick of butter, that would be a high calorie density food. A food that is not very rich, like an apple, would be a low calorie density food. And turns out that those lower calorie density foods create more satiety, more fullness per calorie. So you can get really full eating butter, but you will have eaten a huge number of calories. You'll hit your fullness point faster on fewer calories if you're eating apples. And so um, that's one property that's very important. 
the amount of protein in your food is also very important. So higher protein creates more satiety faster on fewer calories. Um, higher fiber creates more satiety on fewer calories. And finally, the palatability or the pleasure value of your food. Um, the higher that is, the less filling a food is per calorie. So if you're eating something you really, really love, you literally will not feel as full as you would if you were eating something that you were just so-so on. And so those properties together, essentially, you know, look at all of this. If, if you flip it, if you say, hey, what about really highly palatable, really calorie-dense, lower-protein, lower-fiber foods? Those are things like candy bars and donuts and pizzas. Those are things that we really recognize as junk foods. So this, this principle explains a lot of why we overeat junk foods, and it explains a lot of why when we go on a diet of unrefined whole natural foods, most people will experience weight loss. Um, and they, most people will spontaneously eat fewer calories without even trying to experience weight loss. So, um, one thing we can do, um, and there are a couple of other things, but I think one of the most important really, and this, this one's also really simple is controlling your food environment. So that dopamine release I was talking about earlier and that, cravings and the motivational states that get triggered by seeing visual and smell cues and things like that, that food is around, um, <clears throat> those things, those cravings, those motivations are very responsive to cues in your environment. So the sight of food, the smell of food, those are the things that get um, your motivation triggered. And so if you have a food environment in which you every day, and a lot of people have this, for example, at work, you'll be at work and someone brings donuts into a meeting and they're sitting right in front of you for an hour or someone brings brownies in. This is something that, that's really, really common in a, in a work scenario. Obviously, people are doing it to try to be nice, to try to do something good, but it results in a very toxic food environment at work that's very fattening and unhealthy. But that's what I'm talking about is controlling the cues in your food environment such that you're not giving those motivational centers of your brain the cues that cause them to trigger your cravings and that cause them to trigger your eating. So really what you want to have is a food environment where it, in your home and at your workplace, there's no visible food or if there is any visible food, it's something that's not that tempting and that requires a little bit of work, like unsalted peanuts in shells, uh, whole fruit, like oranges that you would have to peel. If you're hungry, you can still eat them, but you're not going to do it unless you're actually hungry. You're not going to reach your hand into a bag of chips. You're not just going to grab a soda off the counter. Um, so you want to have a clean food environment where there's not, you're not giving yourself those tempting food cues. And ideally, for the foods that you experience the strongest cravings for, like let's say chocolate or ice cream, you don't want to have those in your house at all because there's a little, there's a little part of your brain in the back that knows that the ice cream's in the freezer and it will remind you of that after dinner. And so... Um, that's the best is to just not have it in your house at all. If it's a particularly dangerous food for you. Um, I, I think we've all been in that situation and, and it's best just to um, get everything out of your house, as you say, so that you're, you're um, not tempted uh, to go in that direction. So yeah, I agree. Does, yeah. How, how does uh, sleep play a role in all of this? Yeah. Um, so, Sleep is another one of these brain systems that can plug into um, eating, drive, and body fatness. And essentially what researchers have found is that if you don't sleep enough, it activates parts of your brain that essentially look like 
your brain doesn't have enough energy. Your, your brain essentially thinks it's starving when it's really not. And uh, it will drive you to eat excess food. And um, that's what the studies have shown, that if you sleep a few hours less than you need to feel well-rested, you'll tend to eat too many calories. And furthermore, you know, not only does it cause you to feel driven to eat excess calories, but sleep restriction will actually undermine your ability to control your behavior when your brain is driving you to eat too many calories. So, you know, we have these, uh, we have these impulses that our brain throws at us, things like hunger and cravings. We don't have to act on those, right? I mean, there's a difference between having a feeling and engaging in a behavior. We do have conscious control over our behavior, but that depends on certain other circuits that can be stronger or weaker depending on how well we're treating our bodies. And so if you're not sleeping well and you're feeling groggy and you're just not feeling good, you have a reduced ability to exert that willpower that you need to say no to a craving. So those are two different ways um, in which insufficient sleep can undermine our desire to eat healthy and stay slim. And so basically if you, if you insist on restorative sleep on a regular basis, then you will make it easier for yourself to way you want to eat and to have the body you want to have because first of all, you won't have the same types and strengths of cravings. You won't have the same strength of hunger. And second of all, when you do, you'll have a better ability to control it. So, um, you know, we're going to have to end the show. I think we could keep talking. Your book has tons of information in it. And um, what I like about it is it's also easy to read. So if anybody wants more information, it's definitely a, a great place to to go. Um, is there any way that uh, people can um, contact you or find your book if they want more information? Yeah, so my book is available on all the major uh, booksellers, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the others. Um, I have a website, which is stephanguiennet.com. And if the spelling is difficult, you can go to wholehealthsource.org, and that will link you to my website. I'm also quite active on Twitter, and my handle is at source. Well, that was great. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great show. Okay, thank you. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Just be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 